Simple Beep, Episode 10, Triumph of the Nerds, Part 2. Hello, and welcome back to Simple Beep, a podcast looking back at the history of Apple and the Mac community. I'm Ed Cormany. And I'm Brian Satorius. And we're back to continue our little mini-series on the PBS documentary Triumph of the Nerds, and we're here for Part 2, Episode 2, called Riding the Bear. Before we get into this episode, we just wanted to... uh, mention that uh, for the entire series, PBS is still maintaining the official Triumph of the Nerds website. And you can see this yourself by going to pbs.org slash nerds. That's it. It's a very short URL. And this is one of those sort of fossilized websites that has just, somebody has paid for it to stay out there on the internet. And, you know, I guess PBS had an early web presence because they got pbs.org, a nice three-letter domain name with a common TLD. And they got money and they've still got a website and nobody's taken it down. So there are some great artifacts about this website. Uh, For example, it has a header image representing uh, key figures from the series like Steve Jobs, Bill Gates, and our friend from part one, Edwin Chin. He gets equal billing up there with Steve and Bill. It's kind of remarkable how they chose that. And then in the background, there are sort of four representative images of computer hardware software stuffs. Yeah. Down the right side of the webpage, there are three more images that also get equal billing. A picture of our host, Robert X. Cringely, looks like a you know still capture from the video. Then... Images of book cover and box set. If you want to buy the miniseries on VHS, you can do so at Shop PBS. And then inexplicably, the third GIF on the right-hand side is it's a two-bit GIF, black and white image of a frog wearing a coat. <laughs> and sort of really like looking down his nose, like the literal image of looking down your nose and it's a link to Cringely's blog. Which has clearly been updated much more recently than the Triumph of the Nerds website, even though it itself uh, is no longer active. So we have no way of knowing if this frog, <laughs> what this frog was representing. And because these were simple days of the web, like we said, a nice uh, clean URL. The, uh, the canonical URL for that image is pbs.org slash nerds slash frog dot gif. <laughs> they weren't messing around. Nope. At this website, there uh, is also some supplemental content, like the full transcripts of each of the three episodes. They've come in handy for us when we're uh, searching for and picking out quotes to drop in. There's also a game, which you can play in either Shockwave or HTML. The one I tried, the HTML was broken, but it was uh, it's called Can You Guess the Computer? Feel free to try that out. And finally, there's a place for you to email in your comments about the show. And you click on this page and you get a pretty basic web form, you know, much like you would find the contact form on our own web page. You know, put your name, subject line, which is already filled in for you as Triumph of the Nerds. And I thought, gee, well, you know, this is of the same vintage as the rest of the website. I bet this is a really basic HTML form. And sure enough, uh, go in and view the source and it's just a uh, Perl script that will send an email. And then there's a 
hidden tag input name equals address type equals hidden value equals www at pbs.org and i wonder if anybody's checking that email account these days you know feel free to to write them in after you watch it for yourself and we'll see if they ever get it but for now on to part two of triumph of the nerds writing the bear so this is going to be the episode where of simple beep where we don't talk about apple at all yeah (laughs) sorry about that guys (laughs) Uh, let's get it out of the way. Let's get the, it, Apple comes up in this episode really at the recap and at the look forward to part three. So in this recap before the titles, uh, they restate that, um, we have just finished kind of the kickstart of the home PC era because Apple has released the Apple II, the first kind of neatly packaged, um, small, questionably affordable desktop computer for the home. And they state that um, around this time, around 1980, the entire home PC market was worth a billion dollars. Just compare that to how much profit Apple reported earning the previous financial quarter. That's $18 billion in profit. Well, it's one Instagram. <laughs> yeah, yeah. A unit of measure that had not been invented yet. <laughs> also, in this recap, there is a uh, big focus again... On stereotype imagery and saying that, oh, these guys were the hackers who came in and changed everything. Again, throwing around the word hackers just sort of indiscriminately. So then we get through the the same comic book titles that we described in the last episode, playing on hacker and nerd stereotypes and some pretty cheesy music. And we're into the content of this episode. We continue by contrasting uh, two classes of people working on computers. There are the the nerds, the hackers, who are uh, young, socially awkward, etc. And then there are the suits, um, and in specific, the suits uh, representing people who work at IBM. And for the brief moment that they continue to talk about the hackers, the nerds, the counterculture people, we hear two sounds that early Mac users will be familiar with: the Sosumi beep. And the quack just kind of sprinkled in there to show how quirky these nerds are. Like rapid fire. Like you had a dialogue box open where if you hit any key, you would get the error tone and you just like mashed on the keyboard for no good reason. (laughs) You said that, you know, these are sounds that early Mac users are familiar with. Quack is long gone, as is Wild Eep. And of course, Simple Beep, the name of our show. All of those old alert sounds are no longer in Mac OS X. But Sosumi... Uh, the alleged creation of Jim Reeks uh, <laughs> persists. And in fact, I use Sosumi as the alert sound on my work computer. Oh, nice. So people in my office have been subjected to that sound. Usually not quite as rapid fire as that. Uh, so we're, we're done looking at the nerds. Now let's focus on the suits. We get a little overview of what the culture at IBM was like at this time in the early 1980s. Uh, there are some facts that I didn't know, um, but I guess aren't surprising. IBM adhered to a very strict dress code. Uh, everyone was dressed very nicely in a suit. They also see, uh, cringely claims that they also never fired anyone. He actually says they only required your loyalty and a suit. Yeah, it seems a little dubious. It's classic cringely hyperbole, I think. Uh, we then also proceed to a montage of cringely discovering how to put on a suit 
which involves lots of strange shots of him uh, throwing clothes around out of a closet and generally walking around with no shirt on, which is not necessary and not really great for anybody, I don't think. <laughs> yeah, um, and this isn't the end of Cringely selling himself as a sex symbol. We'll see a little more at the end of this episode. Uh, but once he finally finishes getting business dressed, he literally warps onto the front lawn of what he calls IBM's intergalactic headquarters. It's a, it's a cheesy, like, beam-me-down Scotty effect uh, where he, he fades onto the grounds. And he describes IBM as a country. He really doesn't know the scale here. Countries are much smaller than galaxies, and intergalactic <laughs> requires multiple galaxies. Yeah. Um, so, like any country, I guess, is his reasoning. Uh, IBM had a songbook, maybe like a national anthem. Uh, and he proceeds to sing one of these songs with a uh, a former IBM employee to the tune of Jingle Bells. It's a it's like to drum up enthusiasm for going out on a on a sale. But at the end, the final line ends with IBM Watson men partners of TJ in his service to mankind. That's why we are so gay. And then the IBM guy feels that he must quickly interject. Now, gay didn't mean what it means today, then. Remember that. <laughs> right. Okay? Okay, let's okay. go. And so, hooray, homophobia of 1995, 96. It was a little bit unfortunate there. Yeah. Of course, if you really want some great, uh, great songs that pertain to the computer industry and are also to the tune of Jingle Bells and other Christmas music, highly recommend... And also from the same era, and with no homophobia, highly recommend David Pogue's uh, Christmas song spoofs that are uh, parodies related to Apple and Microsoft. I think they're from 97, so really like only a couple years later. And also still up on like a, you know, hanging in there kind of corner of his website with, I think, you know, QuickTime movies of, uh, of him playing the piano and, uh, and singing along. Yeah, David Pogue's a real treasure of uh, the Mac community. Well, he was a musical theater guy. Yeah. Before he was a tech guy. We might have to do a whole episode on him. <laughs> yeah, well, and that was one thing that we thought about mentioning last episode and didn't get around to, is I think there has to be a comparison and, and contrast, compare and contrast between Cringely and Pogue. Because David Pogue recently has done some documentaries for PBS. And he's done this series called Making Stuff, which is a pop science uh, series on basically how various products and materials are made and you know the amazing wacky science behind them. And the character that Pogue plays as the host of those shows is really like hammy and there are tons of bad puns and he's always sort of like joking with the people that he interviews but it's all like really lighthearted and entertaining in all of the ways that i did not find cringely and you know maybe that's just a personal preference but it was like one one just makes you sort of groan like oh you're being too clever and the other one makes you groan like oh i must get away from you <laughs> yeah so we've been introduced to IBM and seen how they were the suits as opposed to the nerds 
we've uh, already been talking about. Now it cringely gets into the threat that IBM sensed from Apple and other upstart personal computer makers since they were previously serving the business sector with large mainframe computers. There's a quote here uh, that you could probably hold true to Apple today. Sure, there's a big computer three flights down, but I won't test my options, do my charts, or edit my reports like my Apple. The people who'd gotten it were religious fanatics about them. There's an ad of a guy using a, an Apple II at his desk in his cubicle at work where he says, like, everything that the mainframe two floors downstairs can do, I can also do right here. And it's clear that IBM sensed this as a threat, and so they set towards making their own home personal computer. You're right, Brian, that the notion of Apple people being fanatics or having almost an, a religious attachment to them is something that's persisted now. I think, you know, the the term now is, of course, fanboy. And there was a whole, you know, dust up with people. Oh, are you an Apple fanboy? What is a fanboy? Blah, blah, blah. About a year ago, I think that whole debate went around and around and people got pretty sick of it. <laughs> Um, just saying, you know, you can follow the stuff or you can not follow the stuff you can. And today more than I think in the nineties or even in the eighties, there's much more of, you know, we talk about computing ecosystems and the fact that you can like one part of it and not like another part of it, but you're not even taking like the lesser of two evils, you're taking something that you really like and all of the parts that you don't really like that are sort of attached to it. And, you know, having that sort of nuanced conversation is a little bit different. Another thing is the sort of false dichotomy that they're setting up between, like you said, the nerds and the suits. And one of the interesting things about this in terms of the way that the history has progressed is that's kind of true in the sense that in the very, very early days of personal computing, only hardcore computer enthusiasts, the nerds in Douglas Adams terms, you know, the people who use computers to use a computer, only they and the people who had business applications, the mainframe applications, were really interested in them. And well, what about the people in the middle, the sort of everyday user? And the way that they talk about this as they start interviewing people from IBM, is that the way that the history played out was not that the computer enthusiasts convinced their friends that they needed computers. The business people convinced businesses that everyone in an office should have a computer. And then people realized, oh, well, I use a computer at work. I could use a computer at home. I think that was one of the most interesting things that they got at here. And, you know, it, even though the Mac is not really mentioned here, we'll get into some of the weird chronology with that in a minute. But, um, you know, I think the Mac community was the former, where it was the computer enthusiasts telling their friends, no, you really need this. And only a couple of small business applications, um, you know, particularly graphic oriented ones. Um, so, it's interesting how those user bases grew and what influences they had. So from here, we also get another one of Cringely's uh, didactic lessons on the history of computing. And he tries to explain to us what an operating system is. 
but in order to do this, he A, returns to his garage, and B, dons a lab coat, because I guess he just has one in his garage. <laughs> um, and presumably another one of those things where it's, you know, like the mark of authority. Like, you'll believe him if he puts on a lab coat. It makes him sciency. Um, he tries to explain what an operating system is and does sort of a, an okay job, I think. He, he really describes more of some, you know, what he's describing sounds more like firmware. Um, but I guess we won't pick nits too much here. And he's talking about an OS because, uh, IBM had launched an initiative to create, uh, their own PC, obviously to combat the, the rising competition from Apple, um, and they even went so far as to abandon their model of building the whole widget in-house and moving from manufacturer to just assembly, picking off the part components and assembling them into a nice case. But the final thing that remained was bundling their hardware with an OS. And it seems that, I mean, like this was all new history for me to learn. Uh, it came down to two candidates. There was an OS called CPM, which was made by a company called Digital Research. Or there was this company called Microsoft, which is already making waves with its basic interpreter. Um, and so Gary Kildall of Digital Research had not patented CPM. They, um, they actually go into a whole thing about how Gary wanted to avoid conflict while Bill Gates over at Microsoft was the opposite and approached everything in his life like a competition, like a game that he needed to win. And so uh, the show starts to paint another dichotomy here, which was actually entertaining to me. One of the other things that IBM was looking to do here, like you said, was that they're trying to make sure that they stayed dominant in the business sector. And I was I was intrigued to see that old Apple II ad, which was Interestingly, it was animated as well, as I recall, mm-hmm. sort of a cartoony style, um, but a lot more personal and less awful than the titles of this very documentary. But the thing about that was the guy was saying, oh, yeah, they've got like the mainframes here, but I've got my Apple II and it does what I need. And it sounded just like the whole bring your own device kind of conflicts that crop up in corporate IT today, or have in the past five to seven years with the iPhone, where you know, everything is entrenched, it's all Windows and whatever, you know, whatever hardware vendor you're going with, or maybe in some companies for cell phones, it was BlackBerry, BlackBerry was dominant, there was nothing that was going to beat BlackBerry, they had, you know, hardware keyboards, and they could do email better than anybody else. But then somebody comes in and says, well, I've got my iPhone and it can do that and everything else better. And people are getting a little, you know, a little leery about that. And then, of course, you know, the the senior VP or the the CEO comes in and says, well, I've got an iPhone, too, and it's awesome. And then, you know, the whole thing tips over. And that was the situation that IBM was trying to avoid and really did successfully avoid through some sort of very quick thinking and getting a product to market faster than they were accustomed to. And then we get to what became my favorite parts of this episode. Anything that Steve Ballmer said. (laughs) Yes. I mean, I remember a few years ago when Ballmer was sort of going on his way out 
at Microsoft and everybody's going, Steve Ballmer's getting up on stage and saying crazy things. Has he lost his mind? No, Steve Ballmer has always been this way. <laughs> yes. We just weren't paying attention. Yeah. Uh, so it's left up to Steve Ballmer to introduce this story of how CPM and Microsoft both had to vie to be the supplier of an OS for IBM. Also, interestingly, Ballmer is the first and I think really only person that we see here in episode two, who is a major, major player in a major company besides, well, we don't really see the the big guys at IBM. We see a couple people who are on the inside, but he's the first like major player that we recognize from today's software and hardware world that wasn't in the first episode. But here he comes. He's brought in to tell the story of how IBM needed an OS and the two players were Digital Research, which had created CPM but not patented it, and Microsoft. And to hear Balmer tell it, uh, IBM kind of surprised Microsoft and said they were going to be there the next day for a meeting. Bill said, well, how's next week? And they said, we're on an airplane, we're leaving in an hour, we'd like to be there tomorrow. Well, hallelujah, right on. IBM went to Microsoft, but they didn't have an in-house OS. So Microsoft actually sent them to digital research. And uh, apparently Gary Kildall had some uh, problems with IBM's NDA and basically lost the deal of a lifetime because IBM went back to Microsoft. And uh, Microsoft, again, didn't have an OS, but CPM wasn't patented. CPM was apparently... uh, reverse engineerable. And uh, we get into the story of another company that kind of lost out to Microsoft in the deal of a lifetime, a computer a company called Seattle Computer Products. Uh, one of the guys there, Tim Patterson, had back engineered the CPM OS and Microsoft bought it from him for $50,000. That's it. Yeah, it didn't even sound like he had to do that much reverse engineering work. He said that there was like thorough API documentation on CPM and he just got this manual and it was simple enough at the time that it it said that he worked on it, I think half time for four months, something like that. And, you know, you've just got the full API. Okay, make an, a clone API that does all of the same things. It has all of the same hooks. And again, there's been some interesting legal cases recently, I think, about whether you can copyright an API and if it's made public and it has such and such hooks, can you uh, can you create something that has the same functionality, that has the same names for the API hooks, or do you have to name them something different so that they aren't directly compatible? All sorts of weird issues that were not issues at all at the time. It was right there in a book and you sit down in front of your computer and you type things in and you have your clone OS that you then get your big break and sell to Microsoft for $50,000. Oops. Um, But, you know, all of these issues, they just keep coming back and back and back. Uh, And another fun tidbit about this is that Tim Patterson called it QDOS and the DOS doesn't stand for Disk Operating System. Rather, the whole thing stands for Quick and Dirty OS. Yep. So with Microsoft supplying IBM with an operating system, the the final piece of sorts was in place for the IBM PC, and we're treated to some gratuitous footage of cringely stumbling through 
a palm grove in Boca Raton, Florida. Uh, so he can come out of the grove and be at the office park where the IBM PC was born. You said that all the pieces were in place, but then he points out there's one thing left for this to be a force in the market, which is what they left off on the last episode, the notion of a killer app. And they say that, uh, guess what? It was another spreadsheet. And this time it was Lotus123, which was essentially a spreadsheet app and went big with the IBM PC. They also play a fantastically awful Lotus ad with people dancing around an office and singing in dresses and three-piece suits. So with all of this in place, you would think IBM kind of continued their their huge market share, their mind share as they win. They're yeah, done. Yeah. They're they're deep blue. They're they're the dominant force. No, it turns off that Microsoft uh under competitive Bill Gates was making all the right moves and this began them on their path to real dominance. Well, the critical piece was that they hadn't given exclusive license to IBM. So they knew that other people would be coming, knocking on their doors the same way that IBM did, and they could continue to license out their software. Meanwhile, all this whole time over in Cupertino, Apple is not considering licensing its software to anybody. They're content making Apple II the operating system and the firmware and the hardware and, you know, creating iterations of the Apple II line, including the 2E, the 2C, maybe the 2GS. 2GS was post-Mac, so maybe not. Uh, and then uh, Cringely comes back to kind of give us a little lesson again, and this time it's on the concept of reverse engineering. Like, how did Tim Patterson uh, reverse engineer CPM? And uh, he goes in through that, like, he himself could take the same steps. He could trace through an API manual. He could recreate um, certain calls for certain functions. And he could figure out, uh, as he explains it, like the way things are supposed to work and write down his findings, you say, you could say. And then you hand these findings off to someone who has never attempted to uh, reverse engineer a piece of software. And, uh, he goes to his his attorney to certify all of this, and they refer to these people who have never in, uh, encountered the software as virgins. Um, you know, and probably fits in nicely with this nerd stereotype. They they bring in uh, a software engineer and and you know label him a virgin to his face, and it's all playing into this terrible <laughs> narrative. And uh, and just to drive the point home, the lawyer says like now. Cringely, as the person who was going into the work of reverse engineering this software. You, you are contaminated. You are dirty. You've seen the product that's uh, the original work of authorship. You've seen the target product. So now, from here on in, we're going to be working with people who are not dirty. We're going to be working with so-called virgins who are going to be operating in the clean room. I right? certainly don't qualify there. I, I imagine you don't. And his lawyer's like, we're not here to talk about that. Which And every viewer goes, we're not here to talk about that. Yeah, just disgusting. One of the other things, though, that they continue on with this, though, is that, you know, they talk about how Microsoft is approaching its business and that they have a, quote, adolescent need to dominate. And again, just like anything that could be vaguely sexual here is is that way in 
the worst possible way imaginable, at least from our 2015 perspective. But gosh, I would have to hope that that applied 20 years ago and for a long time before that as well. Let's go back to Balmer. Um, so <laughs> Steve Balmer is always good for a good time. Um, and, you know, the metaphor here, this whole episode has been the suits. But uh, apparently he had a slightly different metaphor for characterizing IBM, which gave the episode its title. They are apparently the bear. It was just part of, as we used to call it at the time, riding the bear. You just had to try to stay on the bear's back, and the bear would twist and turn and try to buck you and throw you. But darn, we were going to ride the bear because the bear was the biggest, the most important. You just had to be with the bear. Otherwise, you would be under the bear uh, in the computer industry, and IBM was the bear, and we were going to ride the back of the bear. As Balmer is saying this, I mean, you can hear it in his voice, but his eyes are bulging out and he's making jet, he's making claws with his hands. <laughs> uh, he was just so, you know, we, we mentioned last episode that in the previous, in, in episode one of the documentary, the only person who seemed to really be enthusiastic was Wozniak, Steve Wozniak. And here it's like, man, they were just sitting on this footage of Balmer. <laughs> That whole first episode, because he's got even more energy, maybe a slightly more manic energy, but he's just full of, full of it. He also goes on to sort of get down on IBM. He says, you know, all, they were all about how many lines of code or thousands of lines of code. He calls them K-locks, K-locks. How big a project is this? Oh, it's a 10-K-lock project. This is a 20-K-locker. And uh, there's a 50-K-locks. And we kept trying to convince them, hey, if we have a developer's got a good idea and he can get something done in 4k locks instead of 20k locks should we make less money yeah anyway it almost makes my my back just crinkle up at the thought of the whole thing and another thing that that's also holds today it's like if you can write efficient code that's so much better like i'll you know i have some friends who are developers and i follow them on twitter and you know they'll say sometimes like man I wrote negative 300 lines of code today. And that's like, they're bragging. That's like, I did some of my best work today because I made this thing that was just like a pile of hacks that could barely do what it was supposed to into an efficient machine. And IBM was not interested in that. They like wanted to pay by the line of code. It's like, you know, paying authors by the word and you wind up with Dickens, um, where he just goes on and on and on and on because the longer that you can write the story, you can make a short story long, then you get paid more money. Um, so this was at that point where Microsoft and IBM were starting to realize that their philosophies were not meshing anymore. So this is also the point where we start to get a little bit out of chronological order. So uh, the documentary jumps to the IBM and Microsoft partnership on actually writing some code together, which was OS2. Uh, this was designed to be IBM's proprietary operating system, so they would have an exclusive licensing deal. But it still meant that Microsoft was writing the code. And as they say, you know, Microsoft didn't really want to undermine their business, and eventually the whole deal fell apart. And because they were smart they knew that they needed to be working on something else on the side, not investing all of their engineering effort into OS2, figuring that that would be their only source of money for the future, because they knew that they were making the bulk of their money from 
other hardware vendors who were licensing DOS, not IBM. So what they were working on on the side was Windows. And the way that it comes together in the documentary is sort of like, well, you know, there was DOS and then there was OS2 and then there was Windows in that order. But uh turns out that Windows 1, which I think practically nobody used, um, you know, Windows really came into its own with Windows 3. Um, sort of like how on the Mac there was System 1 and then <laughs> System 6, right? Like yeah. Systems 2, 3, 4, and 5, you know, they were technically like there, but nobody really thinks about them. And of course, now with Microsoft, version numbers are totally out when they skipped from Windows 8 to Windows 10. Um, but that's more in more in line with our idea of how numbering works on computer software in 2015. Um, but anyway, so this sort of gets a bit out of order, but it actually makes Microsoft seem a little bit more forward-thinking, or at least adaptive, that they had Windows 1 in 1981, and then Windows 2 wasn't released until 1987. So as the things were falling apart with OS 2. Now, here is the thing that you must watch this entire episode for, if nothing else. Because we said that Steve Ballmer, you know, he gets up on stage, he's promoting stuff, people are saying, he's crazy. Well, turns out he did TV ads for Microsoft when they were not uh, hiring crazy production teams to get people to jump over tables with surfaces. How much do you think this advanced operating environment is worth? Wait just one minute before you answer. Watch as Windows integrates Lotus 1-2-3 with Miami Vice. (laughs) So yeah, he's the salesman here. This segment uh, wraps up with... uh quote from Bill Gates that kind of sums up um, how Microsoft was having these uh, multiple projects going on at the same time so they could adapt and plan for the future. This quote just killed me because spoken in 1996, it's a quote that's saying, this is what we were thinking 10 years ago, and this is how we got to be kings of the hill. We're on top, but here, take a listen. And think of how this sounds talking about Microsoft in 2015. If you miss what's happening, then the same kind of thing that that happened to IBM or many other companies could happen to Microsoft very easily. So no one's got a guaranteed position in the high technology business. And the more you think about, you know, how could we move faster? What could we do better? Are there good ideas out there that uh, we should be going beyond? Uh, it's, It's important. Today... Everyone's like, Microsoft is the dinosaur. They're the IBM now. They're the people who can't put out any sort of new product in four years. I mean, heck, I know I just installed the preview version of the new Office on my work computer, the Office 2016, and the previous version was 2011. And, you know, that's like the cycle that they're on for those kind of products is like five-year cycle. And... They're trying to adapt and move faster now. And of course, Ballmer is out now. And they got Satya Nadella as the new CEO. And they had a wild uh, press event a couple months ago where they introduced their plans for Windows 10. And that would have been plenty. But hey, we're going to bring out holographic things that you strap to your head and let you play Minecraft on a table. So again, this... This mentality, it went away from Microsoft and it really killed them. I mean, you know, not that they're dead, not that they're an unprofitable company, 
but it's the kind of thing that has given them products in the past few years like Windows Phone, which is a joke. Worse than worse than BlackBerry. I mean, you know, BlackBerry was the, you know, king of the business market fallen from grace now, but Windows Phone never even got off the ground really. Yeah, you mentioned that their product cycle is 5 years. Well, the iPhone as we record this is 8 years old. Uh and if Microsoft was going from uh, whatever the early versions of Windows Smart-esque phone was. I remember I had a, a HTC Excalibur, I think. It was my first smartphone and back in like early 2000 or late 2006. I went straight from the flip phone to the iPhone. I was lucky. Yeah, you did it right. But I remember I had a phone that ran Windows Phone even before it got like the modern Metro design language. It was it was a terrible experience, but Microsoft it, and that's what Microsoft had before the iPhone came out, and it took them however many years before they even got into some kind of modern feeling and acting smartphone interface, and they are still behind even with the big leap that Windows Phone eight is today. Right, and everyone who's commenting in this space again, going back to the the fanboy or the religious cult sort of aspect of it, a lot of the more level-headed commentary that I heard of, you know, looking at the podcasts that I listen to, like ATP and Connected, where these are Apple guys. They're using Apple products all the time. They love them. But when Microsoft made those announcements, the reaction from a lot of the Apple community and the tech community at large is, finally, finally, they're moving again. They can, you know, maybe they'll actually come up with something that's interesting competition. We don't want them to just sit and wither and die over there. They've got a lot of talent. Don't let those people just go and go off to tiny little companies that aren't going to make something big. Bring something exciting and big back to the marketplace. So hopefully, uh, hopefully in the next few years, Microsoft is going to uh, live up to this quote from their co-founder. And that's where we leave uh, Triumph of the Nerds for this episode. It has Microsoft on top. And in their teaser for part three, they have some pretty cool behind-the-scenes footage of Apple's famous 1984 commercial with all the uh, the like clonish people in their drab makeup and uh, jumpsuits like goofing around uh, behind the scenes. Now, granted... I I didn't see the 1984 commercial when it was first released because I was not born yet. (laughs) Neither were you. Yep, same here. But I have seen the commercial many, many times. I know the aesthetic. I know how it's set up. And I had never seen this footage. This is like true behind-the-scenes footage, like cameras on dollies, people getting makeup applied to them. Um, Pretty interesting that, you know, that came out in this little teaser portion. And so the message that Cringely and PBS are setting up is that now at the end of this part two, Microsoft is on top, uh, especially with regard to the the home PC market. But Apple is preparing to launch the Macintosh. And uh, they mentioned that the 1984 commercial was aimed at IBM. I mean, IBM is doing okay for itself. It's in the PC, the home PC market, and uh, it has home PC OSs of its own. But really, who Apple should have been targeting is Microsoft itself because it is on top. And reporting all of this to us is 
Robert X. Cringely himself on top of a Microsoft logo splayed out like a centerfold. Very cringely. <laughs> Makes me cringe. Yes. Uh, then we roll credits. And one happy thing that I noticed in the end credits is uh, in the opening credit scene, I think it's all uh, cartoons. But in the end credits, uh, they just do a cartoon border. But there's also some little hardware uh, that's overlaid on top of it. And one of the things is an Apple Desktop Bus Mouse 2. You can see the mouse in the top corner. And then the connector down at the bottom turned the right way so that you can see the ADB logo. I, I missed that. Yeah, a nice little, nice little touch there. Apple, Apple is coming back to next episode. So we will be coming back to next episode next week. Again, doing this on our every week release schedule for now to get through Triumph for the Nerds. We're going to get to that sugar water sooner or later. They <laughs> promised me it was in here. <laughs> so that'll be coming up next week. Until then, if you want to check out the show notes for this episode, and it's not just like uh, one link to where you can watch the episode and the official website. We go through and try to, like with all of our shows, try to hit all of the things that we mentioned, talk about, and get them in there in chronological order as we talked about. Uh, about them during the show. So hopefully it's easy to follow and helps you and makes a better listening experience. So go check out the show notes at our website, simplebeep.com slash episodes. You can also leave feedback for us at our website, simplebeep.com or on Twitter. We're at simple underscore beep. And I promise the contact form on our website is not a Perl script. <laughs> Just going straight to www at simplebeep.com. <laughs> no, not quite. Um, you can also find both of us on Twitter. I'm E Cormany, E C O R M A N Y. And I'm B Suto, B S U T O. Buy some Pepsi for next episode, guys. We're going to get there. <laughs>